Heavenly Father, we do thank You. We praise You, Lord, for Your Word. And we pray this morning, Lord, it's such an awesome chapter and as every chapter in Your Word is. And Father, I just pray that we would be prepared to hear from You. That it would not be the words of men, but truly that You would be our teacher. That man would decrease, that Your Spirit would increase. And Father, that we would be receptive to what Your Spirit would say to each one of us. And Lord, we also do pray for Warren and Pat and and, and Lynette, as they minister to our children, Father God, as well, just fill them with your spirit. Give the kids ears to hear. So, Lord, we love you. We praise you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Last week, we looked at Luke 15. and Luke 15, I chaptered the land of the lost. And the reason was that we looked at many different people who were lost, or different situations that were lost. There was a lost sheep. And we know that that's really a clear picture of Jesus Christ as he leaves the 99 to go after the one. We see the work of this work of the Son. Then we saw a picture of a lost coin, and the reason that coin was significant, it was a part of a woman's dowry. It'd be like one of you women losing the, uh, the diamond out of your engagement ring or your wedding ring, and how, how panicked you would be. And the woman lost her coin, and then it says that there was a light. The light illuminated the, the cabin or the, the home so they could find the lost coin. And that's a picture of the work of the Holy Spirit. And then lastly, we saw the, the fact of the, the lost son, the prodigal son. And we saw how the prodigal son was wasteful. And the prodigal son, his attitude with his father was, give me the stuff, give me the goods. And we talked about how in the world today, many people approach God with that same attitude. Give me the stuff, give me the goods. And you know what? He got the goods and he went out and he found out that the goods did not satisfy and the goods faded. And you know what? If you're, if you're trying to find peace and happiness and stuff, you're never going to find it. Amen? If you don't have peace in your current environment, you're never going to have it by adding more stuff from the world. Having a bigger pile of dirt, as I would refer to it. Having a, a nicer deck chair on the Titanic. And the prodigal son, in the end, we know that he came back. And what happened when his father saw him? His father ran to meet him. And his father is a picture of our Heavenly Father. The only time we see how our Heavenly Father in a hurry is when those of us who have been away from him are coming to him. He runs to us. I love the fact that it's a million steps away from God and it truly is only one step back. And you know what? I love the prodigal son's heart. It went from give me the goods to make me a servant. And if you truly want to be used by God, you've got to stop looking at God as the holy Santa Claus up in the sky who, who you want to cry out and ask for stuff. And we're going to look a little more of that in the, in the text this morning. You know what? Our God wants to bless us. Our God wants to minister to us. But you know what? He's not looking to just give us a bunch of stuff. He doesn't want a bunch of spoiled, rotten little kids. Amen? You know, if you give your kids everything, they're never going to truly understand. They're never going to get it. And you know what? We won't realize our desperation and need for God if we're trying to find our satisfaction in the world. And so he said, make me a servant. And so this morning, I want to look at the next chapter as we move on from there. And I want to say this, that each time that one of those lost things was found, it, it resulted in rejoicing. Rejoicing of the Son, rejoicing of the Father. And you know what? When one person is found that is lost, there's rejoicing in heaven. And my prayer is that this morning there would be a party up in heaven. Because we're going to look at some very heavy things this morning from the world's point of view. And there are things that, you know what, I don't talk about quite often, but when they're in the Bible, we're going to talk about it. Amen? You know, we teach the whole counsel of God, not some of it. And so we're going to look at some heavy-duty things this morning. So the title of the message is this. What are we investing in? What are you investing in? What, what is it in your life? You know, it's been said that money is an article which may be used as a universal passport to everywhere except heaven and a universal provider for everything except happiness. You know, money can, can buy you friendship, it can buy you stuff, but it can't bring you happiness. And you know what? 
It can also, you know, bring to you a, a, a passport to go anywhere in the world that you want, but it won't get you into heaven. And we're going to talk a little bit about giving this morning. And some of you say, oh no, I came to church and now they're going to talk about money. I can't stand it. And you know, here's the reality. Anybody who's been here more than one week, you know, we don't pass an offering basket here. You know why? Because we don't want anybody to ever feel like you have to give. We don't want your money. And you know what? And God doesn't need your money. Amen? We don't, we don't want your money. We don't need your money. Here's the reality is you give out of a cheerful heart in response to what God has already done for you. But we're going to see this morning that the Lord is going to address giving. And He's going to address in what we're investing in. And not just talking about giving of, of finances, but giving of our time. Giving of our lives. What are you investing in? A man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. When you invest in the eternal, it will bear fruit. We'll see that this morning. In 1 Timothy it says, And having food and clothing, with these things we shall be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, a snare, and into many foolish and harmful lusts, which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil. It's interesting that, that while we don't, you know, a lot of churches get up and all they ever do is talk about money. And they talk about money for selfish motivations because they want you to give to their ministry. Let me just tell you something. If anybody's on the radio and says, if you don't give to us today, we're going to go off the air, then they need to go off the air. Amen? If they've got to beg for money, then, then you know what? They need to go out of business. Because where God guides, God provides. Amen? And you shouldn't have to be begging and clamoring and get, you know, making people feel guilty and, and making them, oh man, I better give. That's not the way our God is. The Bible says we give with hilarity hilariously. It's a joyful thing. It's a get to and not a have to. If you ever give out of a have to, don't. Because it's a waste of time. Give because you love to. You know what? I don't want my kids to give me a present because somebody stuck a gun to their head and made them come give it to me. Amen? That, that wouldn't be a gift. But I love it when my kids take time to go and make something for Dad and come and sit on my lap and give it to me. It's precious to me. Some of my most treasured possessions are little papers my kids did for me. And I've got them in a box. You know, people, the world has a safety box full of stuff. Mine's full of little things my kids made for me. And that should be the heart that we have when we give. But it's interesting to note that Jesus, one-sixth of the New Testament, or of the Synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, fully one-sixth discusses money. Now, not because God needs your money, but because we struggle so much with the desire for money. You know, it's also 20, uh, 12 of the 38 parables address the subject of money. I'm not a big guy for, for outside stuff, but it's interesting that I, I ran across this, that there was a, a study done by the Rand Corporation, and 50% of an adult male's focused thinking is, thought, is spent thinking about money. How, how can I make it? How can I spend it? How do I invest it? How do I save it? Now we know why the Lord spent so much time talking about it. Because it's the thing that gets our eyes off of God so very often. You know, we get up in the morning and sometimes, instead of grabbing our Bible and opening it up to devotionals, we grab the business section and flip to the stock pages to see how our stocks are doing that day. It's amazing how, when we're in, well, wherever we're investing is, we'll grab our heart. And so the Lord this morning is going to address giving. And He's going to address it from a godly perspective. You know, the prodigal son, Jesus described two op op opposite philosophies of life. You had the prodigal son who was wasteful. Then you had the older son who was striving through self-righteousness to somehow earn the favor of his father by doing good works. Both of those are wrong. God doesn't want us to be wasteful with what He's given us. And He doesn't want us to, to somehow think that we're going to earn His favor by being, you know, giving to Him out of contrition. God isn't looking for either one of those things from us. What is God looking for? He's looking for a life of stewardship. 
where we must, we're given to God, by God gives us opportunities and we respond to them faithfully. And I'm looking forward to the day just to know that one day we will give an account. One day we're going to stand before God. And when we stand before Him, it's not going to be the things that we did because someone pressured us. It's going to be the things that we did out of our love for Him. So don't ever respond because a man pressures you. Don't do it. May the Holy Spirit lead you. And you respond to the leading of the Spirit. Amen? You do what the Holy Spirit tells you to do. Not what men tell you to do. You know, people get mad at me all the time because I don't ask people to do very much. And the reason I don't is because I don't want you to do it for me. And I know some of you would. Some of you because you know that I love you and some of you love me, as hard as that is to imagine, but some of you love me too. That's just good. But if I ask you to do something, I think a lot of you would do it just because you want to make your pastor happy. But I don't want you to do things to make your pastor happy. I want you to do things because the Holy Spirit is telling you to do it. And that's why I don't ask you to do it. I let the Lord call you to do it. Amen? And so the Lord's going to talk about that this morning. He's going to talk about giving. He's going to talk about just the approach that we should have to life. And so these are the four things we're going to look at this morning real quick. We're going to look at the parable of the unjust steward. We're going to look at its application for our lives today. Three results that come from us giving to the Lord. We're going to see him warn the Pharisees and everybody who's in love with money. And that may be some of us this morning. And then lastly, he's going to contrast the rich man and the beggar. He's going to contrast their lives, their deaths, and where they spend eternity. So let's begin in verse 1 of chapter 16. And we're going to look at the parable of the unjust steward. Look at verse 1. He also said to his disciples, this is right after talking, sharing with him the parable of the prodigal son. There was a certain rich man who had a steward. And an accusation was brought to him that his man, this man was wasting his goods. Now what is a steward? A steward is somebody who's been given charge by a man to manage his household, to manage his wealth. And this man was a steward of a rich man who obviously lived somewhere else, and he was caring over the man's house. And the, man, the rich man found out that this man was wasting his stuff. This steward was prodigal living. He was the prodigal, we had the prodigal son, now we've got the prodigal or wasteful uh, steward. Wealth didn't belong to him, but it belonged to his master. It was to be used in a way that would please and profit only his master. But sadly, the steward forgot he was a steward and began to act as if he were the owner. He wasted his master's money, he wasted what had been entrusted to him, and spent it upon himself. He was more concerned with personal comfort and physical pleasures than serving his master. Now what's that a picture of? You know what? The Bible says that we are the stewards of the things that God has given us. Do you know that everything that you have belongs to God? Amen? Not 10% of what you have, which is the Bible talks about tithing, but 100% of what we have belongs to God. It's all His. Amen? And we're called to be good stewards of His stuff. Now look what happens in verse 2. So He called him and said to him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your stewardship, for you can no longer be steward. Now, ultimately, what happened to this steward? He went out and he lived and he acted like the stuff belonged to to himself. But one day he was called in before his master and he had to give an account of what he did with the stuff that his master had put into his hands. One day, each one of us will stand before God and we too will have to give an account to Him as to what we did with what He gave us to care for Him. Now, that's talking about our finances, but it's talking about our gifts. Every one of you in this room, if you've been born again, God has given you spiritual gifts. And God didn't give you gifts to hide them. 
The parable of the talents. Remember the parable? You know, one had five talents and the Lord, and they came back and he turned it into ten and one had two and he turned it into four. And the last one had one and he buried it in the ground. Remember what happened? He said, you know, you wicked servant. You could have at least taken that talent and put it in the bank and when I came, brought it back with interest. He said, take that talent and give it to the one who has ten. You know what? If we take the talents God has given us, if we take the, the abilities and the gifting that he has given us that he might be glorified and we bury them in the sand, we're going to deal with God one day. He gave them to us that we might be used for His glory. He gave us the finances that we have that we might learn to give them away. That we might be a picture of Him in holding lightly to the things of this world. And so we see here that, the, that He was going to be accountable. Accountable for the material wealth, for the spiritual gifts. We're going to be accountable for our time. And we're going to be accountable for how we deal with the gospel. What have we done with the good news of Jesus Christ? And we're going to see, and I'll tell you, last night I was so burdened for the lost, and you'll see why when we get to the end of this chapter. My heart was breaking. I was brought to the point, I was just weeping for the lost people of this county. And I'll tell you what, it broke me again, that there needs to be an urgency in our heart. And you know what, we're going to be accountable for what we did with the gospel. Almighty God could open up the sky and say, you all need to be born again. He could do that, couldn't he? He's Almighty God. But instead, he entrusted to us. And we will be accountable for our our wealth, we'll be accountable for our gifts, we'll be accountable for our time, and we will be accountable for what we've done with the gospel. The thief says, what is mine, what is yours is mine, I'll take it. The selfish man says, what is mine is mine, I'll keep it. And as Christians, we must say, what's mine is a gift from God, and I will share it. We are stewards, and we must use what God has given to us to win the loss, to encourage the saints, and to meet the needs of the hurting. Let me just tell you something. We have nothing to hide here at Calvary Chapel. Those of you who give, anytime you want to come and look at where every single dime in this church goes, you come on in and out. You talk to Chris Webb and he'll open up the checkbook and you can look at anything that we do. And I can tell you right now, everything that we do here is to advance the kingdom of God, is to minister to people, to share with them the love of God. It's to pay for facilities like this so people can come and hear about the Lord. And it's to minister to people in this body who are hurting. You know what? I praise the Lord that God has blessed us that if, if you're out of food, you come talk to us and we will make sure that you get fed. If you can't pay your rent, we'll help you. Why? Because that's the way the kingdom of God is supposed to work. Amen? It's not about storing up a bunch of stuff. It's not about having the most magnificent facility. We're blessed to have this building. Amen? People say, well, well, man, I hope you guys get a building. We've got a building. Amen? We've got a place to meet. We don't need to have stained glass. It doesn't, you know what I mean? It's all good. When Jesus was here, they didn't have fancy stuff. They, they stood on a hilltop and preached Jesus. You know, maybe that's what we need to do. Amen? And so we don't need to worry about that. But give. And when we give, we need to have the same heart. And we're going to have the same heart here that, in giving to you and ministering to others that we ought to have as individuals. Look at verse 3. Then the steward said within himself, What shall I do? For my master is taking the stewardship away from me. I cannot dig, and I am ashamed to beg. The steward was confronted by his master and reveals his true heart. I cannot dig. You know what that means? I'm lazy. I'm lazy. The Bible says that a man who does not work shall not eat. That's what the Bible says. The Bible tells us very clearly that laziness is a sin. You know, I really, I'll tell you what. I have to confess to you openly. As a pastor, one of the things I struggle with most is lazy people. You know, people lay around, oh, well, you know, I just, oh, you know. How's it going, bro? Well, you know, I, yeah, I've been out of work for a year and a half, but uh, you look for a job this week? Well, not really. You know, I just didn't really have. And then, you know what? Those people, you know, it's like part of me wants to say, you know, bro, you're in sin, man. Get off your duff. Amen? You need to go out and be faithful. God, you're going to be accountable for your time. And the steward said, oh, I can't dig. 
Oh, you know, I can't do that. I'm too lazy. There's a lion in the street, as it says in Proverbs. I can't go out. There's a lion in the street. Making excuses for why he can't go out and do the things that God has called him to do. I'm ashamed to beg. I'm too proud. You know what? He should have been ashamed of cheating his master. That's what he should have been ashamed of. Amen? He'd been cheating and stealing from his master, and now he knows he's going to be confronted, and now he starts making excuses for things he can't do. And we're going, to see, we're going to see that he continues, that rather than repent and seek his master's forgiveness, he's going to seek to use his master's goods for his own benefit. Look at verse 4. I resolved what to do, the I put out of stewardship that they may receive me into their houses. So he called every one of his master's debtors to him and said to the first, How much do you owe my master? And he said, A hundred measures of oil. So he said to him, Take your bill and sit down quickly and write fifty. Then he said to another, How much do you owe? And he said, A hundred measures of wheat. And he said to him, Take your bill and write eighty. So the steward uses master's goods for his own benefit. What does he do? Can you imagine if somebody from, if you have a mortgage, or if your landlord showed up and somebody was managing the property for your landlord and says, So how much is your rent every month? Oh, my rent's $1,500 a month. Write $750 and we'll call it a deal. How quickly would you grab your checkbook, right? Oh, dude, really? All right, I got it. Can I pay for the next three months in advance? Right? I mean, we'd be like looking for a way to hook up on that deal. And wouldn't you look at that property manager and go, dude, I like you. You're all right. And that's exactly what he's doing here. He's coming in and taking his master's goods. And he says, look, I'm going to give you a discounted rate. I just, I just want you guys to remember me when I lose my job. I want, I want to have a place where I can come and hang out because I'm too lazy to dig. You know, and I'm too prideful to do anything else. So I'm going to use my master's goods to earn favor with the world so that you will look at me with good eyes when I don't have a job. Maybe I come hang out at your house. You know, maybe I can sit, sit on your sofa and eat out of your fridge. You know, and you won't feel bad about it because I, I cut you some slack on the rent. This man was more concerned about what the world thought of him than his standing before his master. He was more worried about taking the funds that were in, in care to him and winning favor from the world than being faithful to his master. Does that sound familiar? We're more worried about, you know, buying stuff we don't need with money we don't have to impress people we don't know, right? Amen? We take money and we want to spend it so that other people will look at us with favor. Oh, wow, look how wonderful. You know, the clothes we buy and the houses we live in and the, and the you know, the cars that we drive. And we want to have status before men. And that's our, our concern. Instead of being faithful to God. You know, I'd love to help one of those Gospel for Asia missionaries who, who's beaten for their faith and puts their life on the line, but I really can't afford to spend 30 bucks a month. You know, it's just, it's just out of my budget. And then we spend 90 bucks a month on cable and direct TV. I mean, help me out, right? I mean, we got our wrong focus. We're more concerned about what men think. You know, I've got to have a certain kind of car. You know, I've got an $800 a month car payment, but I can't do 30 bucks a month for a missionary. I think our, our alignment's all out of whack. Amen? When we start being worried about what men think and the kind of cars that we drive, rather than doing stuff that's eternal. And here's what the steward is doing. And so he's trying to earn favor with men. And it's interesting to see how his master responds. Look at verse 8. So the master commended the unjust servant because he dealt shrewdly. For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. The master admired his actions not because of his lack of ethics, but because of his shrewdness to look forward. You know, isn't it amazing how the world admires when people are shrewd? The world admires people when they're crafty. It's sad, but it's true. It says in Psalm 49, for when, he di- for when he dies, he shall carry nothing away. His glory shall not descend after him. Though while he lives, he blesses himself. For men will praise you when you do well for yourself. 
Who are the people that we give accolades to today? Who are the people that we lift up? Who are the people that are famous? Right? I don't watch too much of that garbage, but, you know, lifestyles of rich and famous, right? Who are the people, you know, and isn't it amazing, the guy's name is Robin Leach, you know, Leach and famous, but, but the point is that they, they sit there and they go on and on about how wonderful, and people worship these people, and they honor them, why? Because they got a lot of stuff. They got the biggest pile of dirt, right? And, you know, oh, you got the biggest pile of dirt, let's honor you. You know, let's, uh, oh, let's have accolades before you. I heard a story that Bruce Springsteen, who makes $30 million a year, when he got divorced, and people heard he was getting divorced, they had fundraisers to raise money to help him out with his divorce. Now help me out with that. The guy's got $30 bucks, and he's leaving his wife for another woman, and people are helping him, having a fundraiser for poor old Bruce Springsteen. You know, we worship people for the... We, we honor people for the wrong reasons. Amen? My heart would be that anybody who walks in these doors, I don't care if they're homeless and they haven't had a bath in 10 years, or if they're the richest man in the world, we should love them all and treat them exactly the same. Amen? The Bible says that man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And we see here that this master was blown away with this guy's shrewdness. You know, and you know what it says there? Look at the end of verse 8. It says, For the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light. Sadly, the people of the world more aggressively plan for their temporal futures, their earthly things, than the sons of light do for our eternal ones. And what I mean by that, think about how much effort the world puts into their 401ks and their retirement and their investing. Can you imagine if the Christian church put as much effort into eternal things as the world does into earthly things? And it says right here in this verse that the world, the sons of this world are more shrewd in this generation than the sons of light. Now how does this apply to us? I'm going to give you three results of giving that we're going to see right here in these next three verses, four verses. And I say to you, make friends for yourselves by unrighteous mammon, that when you fall they may receive you into an everlasting home. Now the Lord is going to use the example of this unjust steward, but He's going to give it a spiritual application. He says, you know what? Take this, this temporal stuff, this unrighteous mammon, right? The love of money is the root of all evil. Peter and Paul both called money filthy lucre. And He said, you take this temporal stuff and use it to win people to an eternal kingdom. What, what is one of the things that's great about giving, one of the many? First thing about giving is you will reap an eternal reward. And I don't mean, you know, you're going to have a bunch of crowns up in heaven, though that might be true. What I mean is this. I know for a fact that, that we will stand before God and when we get to heaven, there will be people waiting for us who God has allowed us in a very small way to draw them into the kingdom of God. You know, those of you who give to missions and things like that, we have no idea what God's done with that. Amen? But does heaven know? Absolutely. There's an eternal reward when we give sacrificially to things that will promote eternity. And the reward we will receive is not here on earth. It's not before men. Men will not praise us. But when we stand before God, we will see what really happened with those sacrifices that we made. What a blessing. What a blessing. How many of you guys ever heard that song, Thank You for Giving to the Lord? That tears you up, doesn't it? And he talks about how, you know, as far as the eye could see, there were people there because this man had given sacrificially of his life. He had ministered in the children's ministry. So you don't remember me, but when I was six years old, you prayed with me to accept Christ, and now I'm in heaven because of your faithfulness to ministry. One of the great things about giving, one of the many blessings, is an eternal reward. Again, a man is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott said that, and he was a man who died on the mission field going out to reach the Alka Indians. 
But at the same time, here's the sad part. Most Christians live lives that are free of any kind of sacrifice whatsoever. I think in the church today, we may not even know how to spell sacrifice. You know, we think we're sacrificing when we sit on these chairs in here on Sunday morning. I mean, it's kind of hard. I mean, we're just, we're just suffering for the cause of Christ. It's a cross I've got to bear. I mean, we think that we know what sacrifice is. And that yet, you know what? I think that the, if there were an 11th commandment, it would probably be thou shalt go on a short-term missions trip. Amen? Because it's very hard to go and go you know, into Mexico or to go to Russia or to go to somewhere where you see people struggling. And you see what God is doing in the lives of people. And you see how satisfied people are with so little. And they come back and just live the same old life anymore. You know what? As Christians, we need to realize that there's an eternal reward for giving. And we need to realize that it should give us an eternal perspective. Look at verses 10 and 11. He who is faithful in what is least is faithful also in much. And he who is unjust in what is least is unjust also in much. Therefore, if you have not been faithful in unrighteous mammon, who will commit to you to trust true riches? Those who are unfaithful in the way they use their money are also unfaithful in the way they use their true riches of God. Again, unrighteous mammon, the love of money, is the root of all evil. So what is the second reason for giving? Let me tell you what it is. It will release you in ministry. If you are not faithful in the small things, God will not entrust you with the great things. You know what? One of the, th- one of the few times, I don't know who gives here, by the way. I have no idea, and I don't care. I really don't. I don't care. I don't know. I'm not going to treat you any different if you give a lot or you don't give anything. It's irrelevant to me. I don't care. Because that's not what I'm, it's, not, it's, not about, it's not about that. That's between you and God. But let me say this. The only time I do look to find out if someone is giving is when we are praying about having somebody become a pastor here or be in leadership in this church. Why? Because to me, the sign of someone who's been called by God is someone who's willing to give. If they're not giving out of their finances, then their heart is in the wrong place. You know what? I can check my own spirit and my own walk with God by looking at my checkbook. I can tell that if I'm holding on to this world tightly, I'm probably not going to be very effective for God's kingdom. Amen? And those who let go and those who give, there's a, that's a sign of their heart. Again, we don't want your money. I'm not trying to pitch you to give money to Calvary Santa Cruz. That's not it. But it's a heart issue. It really is. That if I want to give, it's because I realize what God has given to me. I realize how much He's done for me, how much He loves me, and I realize that all of it belongs to Him, and it's a get-to, not a have-to. It's a joy, not a drudgery. And that's what the Lord's talking about here. So the second result, it will release you into ministry. Again, when we look for elders, we look for calling into ministry, we look for those who have a heart to give. Because those who are not faithful in the small things... How can they be faithful in the great things? Verses 12 and 13. If you've not been faithful in that which is another man's, who will give you what is your own? No servant can serve two masters. For either he will hate one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. No man can have two masters. You cannot walk in two directions at one time. We talk about this many times. The spiritual splits, right? One foot in the world and one foot in the kingdom of God. You keep doing that for very long, it's going to hurt. Especially for you guys, right? And it's going to hurt. It's not good. And here's the reality. We cannot serve two masters. We cannot have a passion to see how much money we can make and truly have a passion to serve God at the same time. Now let me say this. Having wealth is not wicked. But it is if your possessions are possessing you. If your passion is above all else to get stuff. If you're striving for things of this world, then it's sin. It is absolutely sin. 
You shall have no other gods before me. You shall serve no graven image. First two commandments. And that's the trap we can fall into when we put other things before God. And one of the main things we put before God in the United States of America is money. We, we love it. We, want, we strive for it. We find our satisfaction in it. We think that our, our, uh, how well we look before men is based on how much money we make. Right? And people honor people who make a lot. But nobody can serve two masters. Money is a fine servant, but it's a bad master. Giving, I want to say this, is not God's way of raising money, but it's God's way of raising His children. Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. That's what the Bible says. So what are you investing in? Are you investing in worldly things or earthly riches? What is your passion for? When you wake up in the morning, what's the first thought on your mind? Is it getting your Bible out and spending devotional time with the Lord? Or is it running to see how your stocks did? Or to log under your computer and see how your investments are doing? What is it that consumes you? Is it getting into work two hours early so you can make a few extra bucks on overtime? You know, result number three of giving is it changes your focus. It really does. When you give, you know what happens? You become less selfish. Have you noticed that? You become less greedy. You become less concerned with the world. When you're willing to just give it away and let people have it and give, then it changes your personality. It changes your heart. It changes you completely. Every time you give, you give away a part of your greediness and your selfishness. It increases your focus on the eternal. Colossians 3.2 says, Set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. Where, again, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. If your treasure is in your house, your heart will be in your house. You know, I would love to come to church. I'd love to be involved in ministry. I'd love to go street witnessing on Friday night. But, you know, I've got to do some stuff around that. I've got to work on my house. Because that's my treasure. If your treasure is your career, that's where your heart's going to be. If your treasure is, you know, your looks or whatever else, you're going to spend eight hours a day in the health club. I mean, we're going to do things that where our treasure is, there our heart will be also. And if your treasure's in heaven, that's where your heart's going to be. And when you give, the third thing that happens is your focus gets off of the world and it gets on God. It can't help it. It's going to change you when you begin to give unto the Lord. Three results of giving, an eternal reward, a greater usefulness in ministry, and it will give you an increased focus on the eternal. Now we're going to move on to verse 14. And we're going to see Jesus warning the Pharisees. And the Pharisees... Among many other things, when we think about the Pharisees, you know what I think about? I think about the black robes, and I think the self-righteous attitude, and standing on the street corners, and praying out in the middle of the street, making sure everybody can see them. I think about them wanting the best seats, and wanting to be honored by men. But you know what else is true about the Pharisees? These guys loved money. They loved money. The Pharisees by today's standards, there's only about 6,000 of them, the Pharisees by today's standards were multimillionaires. And you know what? They loved their money. And we're going to see how they respond to Christ, and we already have seen, and how they responded to John the Baptist and how they respond to others because they loved their money so very much. Look at verse 14. Now the Pharisees who were, how did I know they were lovers of money? The Pharisees who were lovers of money, it's right there in verse 14. It says, also heard all these things, and they derided him. So when the Lord said, you know what? You guys need to have hearts to give. You need to have hearts to, to give your stuff away. You need to be you know, like this, this steward who, who's selfish and greedy. That's sinfulness. And when they heard it, they derided him. They looked at the Lord, and they, they basically the word in the original language says, they put their noses up at him. They stuck their noses in the air. Oh, right. 
Why? Because they love their money. You cannot serve God and mammon. They like their stuff. They like their comforts. They like their position. And so they weren't going to be lovers of God in any way, shape, or form. They had a, a hatred for Jesus Christ. They turned their noses up at Him because He taught about the evils of loving money. Here's the reality. When you hear this, this morning, it's either going to cause you to deride the message or it's going to cause you to delight in the Lord. It's one of the two. Either you delight in giving or when people talk about it, you stick your nose up in the air. And that's exactly what these guys were doing. Verse 15. And he said to them, You are those who justify yourselves before men. But God knows your hearts, for what is highly esteemed among men is an abomination in the sight of God. The Pharisees professed to trust God, but they measured life by wealth and possessions. The Pharisees taught, and tell me if this sounds familiar. Pay attention. Does this sound familiar? The Pharisees taught that the more godly you were, the more money you would have. You ever heard that before? Turn on Christian TV sometime and every other channel, right? The more money you got, that proves how godly you are. You know, isn't it interesting that the son of the living God had no place to lay his head? He, had no, he owned nothing. When he had to pay his taxes, they had to go fishing and pull a coin out of a fish's mouth. But the, so this prosperity doctrine that's running all over the church, that's a lie out of the pit of hell, if you want to know what I think about it, okay? It's a lie. It's, the Bible says, set your mind on things above, not on things of this earth. And they say, hey man, it's all about Cadillac, Cadillac, and you know, got to claim it and name it, and it's going to happen, you're going to have it. You get your eyes off of God and get your eyes on stuff. You cannot serve God and mammon, but they tell you, talk about mammon. Seek after mammon. Strive after stuff. That's, that's how we'll know who the Christians are in the end times. Well, the Pharisees, that's exactly how they lived. They were all about, give me stuff, let me have money, let people think I'm wonderful. You know what? what a, didn't that break God's heart? How grievous is it that people would think it's about money? When, when the, that's why when Peter and, and, and the other apostles, Andrew, were called by the Lord to come and follow him, you see them negotiating a salary for four chapters, right? He said, come and follow me. And what did they do? They dropped their nets and they went. They just said, how much does this gig pay anyway? You know, what, what, kind, of, what kind of parsonage am I going to have? You know, you got any medical benefits? I mean, they didn't ask any of that. They said, come and follow me, and they went. And you don't see these guys having any money. He tells them to go. He says, don't take your money bag. Don't take your staff. Don't take your knapsack. Take nothing. Trust me. And you know what? It's so sad that the world teaches it's all about money. It's all about stuff. When the Lord very clearly taught that money gets your eyes off of Him and gets your eyes on the world. It's exact contrary to what Jesus had been teaching the people. They are the original propagators of prosperity doctrine. Again, they said it was because they were holy. That's why they had so much stuff. But here's what Jesus said. What your stuff is highly esteemed by the world, but it's an abomination in the sight of God. Again, man looks on the outward appearance, but God looks on the heart. And sadly, many Christians today make the same mistake as the Pharisees. With their lips, they honor God, but with their wealth, they live like the world. They honor God, and, they, and again, I said this on Wednesday night, Christians don't tell lies, they sing them. Right? Pastor Don says in San Jose, you know, I surrender all except my Cadillac, my Mercedes, my stuff, my boat, my cabin. You know what I mean? I mean, it's like, Lord, I'll surrender anything, but, you know, don't be, don't be getting into my hobbies and my stuff now because that's my... And, you know, we, we say, God, you're, you're first, but we put them way down on the list. You know, it's amazing to me that we go out and we strive to get stuff, and that very same thing is the thing that gets us away from the kingdom of God. Again, I'm not saying we all have to go live in a hovel out, outside and, you know, eat, eat, eat 50-year-old bread and, you know, we have to, woe is me. No, our God is Jehovah Jireh, Lord God, our provider, and He's going to provide for your needs. 
But you know what? Our needs, not our wants. Amen? We need to be satisfied. And, and you know what? The more we grow in our walk with God, the less and less we will need to be satisfied. What is covetousness? Remember? Covetousness is desiring more of something that we already have enough of. Amen? You know what? People have given my wife heat because we moved into a smaller place. And you know what? We got a roof over our head. We got food to eat. We're happy. And people have been raining on my wife about, oh, you know, I can't believe your husband did that to you. Oh, you know, oh, I can't believe, oh. And when my husband ever did that, I'd divorce him. I'm like, wow, that's a great marriage. So you married the guy for stuff. That's wonderful. You know, and here's the reality, that we need to learn to just be satisfied with less and less and less. Why? We should live more simply that others may simply live. Amen? Can you imagine, what do you think the greater reward would be? in living in something a little more simple and spending the money on missions and getting the gospel out to a lost and dying world, we're going to see why I have an urgency in my heart as we move on in the text here. So again, when we get to heaven, things are going to be turned inside out. People that spent 70 or 80 years worried about what the world says, the next billion, zillion years will be spent based on what's on the inside. Amen? 70 or 80 years is all about what men think, but eternity is going to be determined based on what God knows. Amen? Quit worrying about being oppressive before men. Verse 16. The law and the prophets were until John, and since that time the kingdom of God has been preached, and everyone is pressing into it. And it's easier for heaven and earth to pass away than for one tittle of the law to fail. Now it's interesting that Jesus refutes not only the Pharisees when it came to their love of money, but also their understanding of what they prided themselves in above all else, and that's the law. The law points to Jesus. Paul said that the law is a taskmaster that, that leads us to the cross. When you look at the law, it's like a big mirror that reveals our sinfulness and our need for a Savior. And the number one thing that the Pharisees thought that they were great in was the law. They thought they were keepers of the law. And he said, you know what? Not only The reason you don't understand money is you don't understand the Bible. You don't understand Scripture. You don't understand the law. You just don't get it. You guys think you're keepers of the law and you don't get it. How do we know they didn't get it? Because John the Baptist came. John the Baptist was prophesied of in the Old Testament. And what did they do with John the Baptist? They had him put to death, beheaded, right? They rejected him, the forerunner of Christ. And what are they going to do with Jesus? They're going to reject him as well. Verse 18. Now, it's interesting. This seems like off the wall, but it's not. Let's look at verse 18. It seems like, where did this verse come from? Whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries... Her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. Now, where did that come from? He's talking about giving. He's talking to the Pharisees about how your focus is in the wrong spot. He talks about the law. And now, out of nowhere, seemingly, he talks about divorce. Now, if you know the times, you'll understand why. The Pharisees had a huge debate about divorce. Shammah was one leader. Hillel was another. And the Bible very clearly teaches that God hates divorce. He hates it. Now, if you're here this morning and you've been divorced, I don't want you to... You know, God will forgive you, and He's a merciful and a gracious God. Amen? And I want you to think you're condemned. But I want to say this. God hates divorce. And they had, this, this Hillel had said, you know, you can get divorced for uncleanness, and that would mean if, if you find a woman more clean than your wife, then she's unclean, and you can trade her in for another one. The Pharisees felt pretty good about that. Oh, yeah, I, I kind of like that rule. Trading my, you know, older wife for a younger model. I like that. Yeah, that's, that's the new law. Let's go with that. If your wife burned the toast or put too much seasoning in your, you know, your eggs or whatever they're eating in those days, you could say, oh, I divorced thee, I divorced thee, and get yourself a new wife. And the Lord says, you know what? The way you guys teach the law, you're oblivious. 
You don't get it. You love money and you're ignorant to what the, what the Bible says and you're supposed to be the religious leaders. You know what? Doesn't that sound familiar? People have stopped teaching the Bible and they've become lovers of money and they've got Christian TV stations. Right? You turn those things on, it makes you want to toss your cookies. They've got chandeliers that cost more than, you know, I mean, you look on there and you go, what, what is this all about? It's all about propagating self. It's prideful. It's arrogant. It's contrary to the Word of God. And then they don't know what the Bible says. That's one of the reasons they're so caught up in money. He says, you guys don't get it. You Pharisees don't get it. So he's going to move on now. And I want to, I want to see this. Where, and again, we've got a, just a, a little bit of time left here. But I want you to see this. This is a heavy, one of the heaviest parts of all of Scripture. And I want to make sure that we understand this. And just bear with me. Okay? We've got about ten minutes here. Lazarus and the rich man. Let me say this about Lazarus and the rich man. When I do a funeral, whether it's for a believer or an unbeliever, I take him to this text. Jesus is going to warn the Pharisees. He's going to warn those in their hearing. And he's going to say, look, I want you to understand something. There's consequences to the way you're living your life. We're going to see a contrast between Lazarus and the rich man. A contrast in the way they lived, in the way they died, and how they spent eternity. Let's get to it. Verse 19. There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. Clothed in purple, fine linen, fared sumptuously means, means he pigged out. He had all the best food, steak and lobster every single day of the week. Had fine linen, the best clothes you could ever imagine, right? He was wearing Armani suits, you know, of the day, right? Guy was wearing $2,000 suits, eating steak and lobster all day long. This guy, from the world's perspective, had it all. The world would honor him. The world would say, what a wonderful guy. He'd probably be on the lifestyles of the rich and famous. Robin Leach probably be over at his house and showing everybody off of his castle. Oh, he's a rich man. Look at this guy. And then in contrast to him, look at the other man, verse 20. But there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, full of sores, who was laid by his gate desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, the dogs came and licked his sores. Is there a little bit of a contrast here? You go from a man, lifestyles and rich and famous, eating steak and lobster, to a beggar by the gates of his door who's, who's probably crippled because he had to be laid there and he's covered in sores and the dogs come and lick his sores and he's just kind of hoping he might get some crumbs off the rich man's table. So from their life perspective, one would be esteemed highly by men and one would be looked down upon. The beggar would be looked down upon. Oh, look at that guy. He's worthless. And everybody would go, oh, look at the rich guy. Look at the suit he's wearing. Look at the food he's got. Look at this beautiful house. Wow, isn't he blessed? Wow, isn't he wonderful? What a great guy. We should honor him. Oh, look at that beggar, man. I just wish he'd get out of the way. Like, why is he standing in the doorway? You know, this man was hoping for some crumbs. The rich man would have been in the who's who's of the day, and last would have been in the who's he, Right? Who's who and the who's he? And nobody would know who Lazarus was. No one in the world probably knew his name. But it's interesting to me that Jesus does. Do you notice that he gives the name of the beggar, but he doesn't give the name of the rich man? But in those days, no doubt, everybody knew the rich man's name, and nobody knew Lazarus' name. But doesn't it go to show you that man looks on the outward appearance and God looks on the heart? Amen? Everybody else knew who the rich man was. They were singing his praises, and they thought Lazarus was a pain and he was in the way. And the Lord knew Lazarus' name, and he doesn't even bother to mention the name of the rich man. Verse 22. So, the beggar died. So that, their contrast in life, now their contrast in death. So it was that the beggar died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's bosom, and the rich man also died and was buried. Let me ask you a question. Who do you think had the nicer funeral? They both died. Who do you think had the nicer funeral? 
When Elvis Presley died, I've seen videos. That he had, they had cars for days. They had every limousine within 500 miles of that place, right? And you know what? Huge funeral. Big celebration, right? Or not a celebration, but, you know, grieving. And they spent a ton of money. And do you think when this rich man died that there wasn't a huge, you know, big deal made over this man dying? What do you think about when Lazarus died? Oh, man, that beggar's dead. Somebody get him out of the doorway. Somebody go drop him in a hole somewhere. So there's a contrast in their life and there's a contrast in their death. But here's the important part. There's a contrast in where they spend eternity. A huge contrast. And this is the part that matters. From the world's perspective, we'd be worried about how we lived and how people saw us. We'd probably even be worried about how we were buried. Hey, by the way, if, if I die before you guys, put me in a hefty bag, leave me on the curb, don't worry about it. Because I'm not worried about it either. Because to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. Amen? And it doesn't matter. But, but here they are. They're worried about how they're put away. They're worried about how they live. And God has a different way of looking at things. And Psalm 49 says, Those who trust in their wealth and boast in the multitude of their riches, none of them can by any means redeem his brother nor give to God a ransom for him. In death, we will all end up in the same place. Lazarus was a beggar and the rich man lived in the palace, but on judgment day, they end up in the same spot, standing before Almighty God. And you don't bring your checkbook with you. Amen? You're not bringing any stuff. You're not clothed in fine linen anymore. You're clothed in the filthy rags of your sin if you've never repented of it. Amen? Or you're clothed in the righteousness of God if you've come to know Him. Death is not the end. It's the beginning of a whole new existence in another world. For the Christian, death means to be present with the Lord. For the unbeliever, death means to be away from God's presence in a place of torment. Look at eternity. Look at these last eight verses. Look at verse 23. And being in the torments of Hades, he lifted up his eyes. This is the rich man. And he saw Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. Then he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue for I am tormented in this flame. You know what, guys? Let me make it really clear. Hell is a real place. Amen? It's a real place. People don't want to talk about hell. Oh, you talk about hell. People won't come back and they won't give. We won't have stuff. Isn't it amazing that giving and hell are all in the same chapter? But here's the reality. The reality is that hell is a real place and Jesus taught about it. He talks more about hell than he does about heaven. And you know what? Hell is heavy. It broke my heart as I thought about hell. It's intense. And it's, he's in the flame. Now the word here for Hades is, where, is also Abraham's bosom. And before Jesus was resurrected, everybody who died went to this place called Hades. And as we're going to see, in Hades there was a great gulf in the middle. On one side was Abraham's bosom were those who went to Abraham, the father of faith, waiting for the sacrifice to be made so they might enter into heaven. And on the other side, as you looked across the gulf, there were people in this flame, in this place of torment. So the rich man dies, and has, you know, they have the huge funeral, and where is he? He's in the flame. Lazarus is with Abraham in Abraham's bosom. The rich man looks across the great gulf, he's in torment, and says, there's Lazarus, one who maybe he never had time for before. And he says, Lazarus, could you dip your finger in water and come put it on my tongue just to give me a little bit of relief from the torment that I'm in. It says in Ephesians 4, 8 and 9 that Jesus led captivity into heaven and it couldn't happen until a price was paid. Hell is a real place. Verse 25. But Abraham said, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received the good things and likewise Lazarus the evil things. But he is comforted and you are tormented. Lifetime of steak and lobster is not worth five minutes in hell. Amen? A lifetime of being Bill Gates 
wouldn't be worth trading for five minutes in hell. And the sad part is, it's not going to be five minutes, it's eternity. You know, this is a true story. It, never, it doesn't say anywhere in here about a parable. You see the word parable anywhere? It's not a parable. This is a fact. This rich man, who when this text was written a couple thousand years ago, was in torment in hell, guess where he is right now? The same place. Guess where he's going to be a billion years from now? The same place. There's a point for man once to live and then to die, and then the judgment, that's heavy. And you know what? Here's the rich man. He looks across. He sees Lazarus. Could he come? And he says, no. You know, when you lived on earth, you had all the stuff. You thought you were a big man. You trusted in your wealth. You trusted in your position. You were a prideful guy. Now, you're in torment. Lazarus, when he was on earth, seemingly had nothing. But you know what he had? He had a relationship with God. Look at verse 26. And besides all this, between us, there is a great gulf fixed, so that, you, that you, those who want to pass from here to you cannot, nor can those from there pass to us. You know what that gulf is a representation of? Sin. God cannot have one sin in heaven, or He's got earth part two. Amen? Can't have one sin. One sin on earth brought the destruction in the earth. One sin in heaven, we'd have the same problem. There cannot be one sin in heaven. And you know what? Lazarus had been made righteous, and he could not know separation from God because he was in God's presence. So he couldn't pass to the other side either. So there's this great gulf in between them. Verse 27 and 28. Then he said, I beg you therefore, Father, that you would send him to my father's house. For I have five brothers, that he may testify to them, lest they also come to this place of torment. If he can't come over here, could you please send him to my family? I don't want my family to end up in this place. When I do funerals, I always, especially when it's somebody maybe I don't know or I don't know if they were saved or not, I always ask this, this question at a funeral. How many of you would like your dearly departed, if they could come back and talk to you for five minutes, how many of you would like to talk to them? And every hand always goes up. I say, I know what they would tell you. And I take them to this text. I say, if they know God, they would be like Lazarus and say, you know what, heaven's real. And you know what, you need to know the Lord. And if he didn't know God, it would be like the rich man saying, go tell my family, I don't want him to come here. You know, people talk about hell and they act like, they make jokes about it. Nobody will be joking in hell. But people make jokes about it and say, oh yeah, well, yeah I'm going to go to hell, but you know what, I'll spend the first 100,000 years just shaking hands with all my friends. It'll be a big raging party. This guy's in hell. Is he like, yeah, cool, my brothers aren't walking with God either. They'll be here soon. It'll be great. Is that what he's saying? Go tell my family. I don't want him to come here. Please go tell him. I don't want him to end up in this place of torment. His heart's broken. Do you know what? It's incredible. This guy's praying and he's in hell. Isn't he praying? Isn't he pleading? He's in hell. Verse 28, 29. Abraham said to him, They have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear him. And he said, No, Father Abraham, but if one goes to them from the dead, they will repent. But he said to them, If they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one raised from the dead. Here's the thing. He said, You know what? Well, could you go send someone back? If, if Lazarus showed up, then they'd all believe. And he says, No, no. If they won't believe the word, they won't believe a miracle. You know what's interesting to me? Is there was somebody risen from the dead in John chapter 11. Wasn't there? What was his name? Lazarus. Now, it was a different Lazarus, but isn't that incredible? And when Lazarus came back from the dead, how did the Pharisees receive him? Oh, dude, a dead guy's alive. Let's all repent. Is that what happened? It, it says in chapter 12 of that text, in verse 10, it says, but the chief priest plotted to put Lazarus to death. He was dead and now he's alive. He said, dude, we've got to kill him. 
We've got to kill him again, right? We've got to kill him. You know, can you imagine you go to a funeral on Friday and Monday the guy shows back up at work? Dude, I went to your funeral. I mean, that's like a, that's a testimony, right? I mean, I once was dead and now I'm alive. And that should be our testimony. But Lazarus, they go, oh man, we've got to kill him. Why? Because everybody goes, well, man, there's something real about this message of Jesus. But we love our money and we love our position and people might start to believe it. We've got to kill that guy. If you don't believe the Word, you won't believe a miracle. And they didn't believe the Word. And he said, if I send back Lazarus, they're not going to believe. Now, this is heavy to me. It's heaven or hell. You're going to be living with your heavenly Father in a mansion prepared for you or, and seeing your Savior face to face and worshiping before His throne. Or are you going to spend eternity in hell having remembered that you rejected Him in a place of torment for all eternity? You know, it's interesting to note here in this text that there's no second chances. There's no purgatory. That's a lie. People teach about purgatory. You can't, you can't light enough candles, you can't give a priest enough money, and you can't pray enough to get someone out of hell into heaven. It doesn't work that way. And here's the reality. People will say, how can a loving God send people to hell? Let me tell you something. If you think that, that our God is an ungracious and unmerciful God, then you don't know the God that I know. Amen? How, let me say this. Our God has done everything in His power to keep people out of hell. He has, he has given us the Word of God. He's given us the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And the only way we can go to hell is if we go over His dead body to get there. Amen? He laid down His life that we might have eternal life. How much does He love us? This much. And people say, how could a loving God send people to hell? He's saying, I don't want any of you to go. It's His desire that none should perish. No, not one. And people say, oh, it's not fair. Wait a minute. We deserve hell. And He loved us enough to pay the price for us. Hell is a real place, you guys. It breaks my heart to think that any one of you would spend eternity there. It kills me to think about that. I think about my children, and I cannot imagine if one of my kids spent eternity, and I, I, you know what? I can't even think about it. I was thinking about last night. I was just, it was just killing me. And I thought, you know what? I'm an imperfect dad. How must our Heavenly Father feel about those who are going to hell? Shouldn't there be an urgency in our heart? Shouldn't every believer this side of heaven be burdened for every unbeliever this side of hell? But the reality is that most people are going to hell. Did you know that? Most people. And you know what? There's, we're running quickly to eternity. Do you know that it's this close? And shouldn't there be an urgency in our heart to reach out to those who don't know God? You know, the sad part is, as I mentioned this before, there's intercession in heaven and people are pleading in hell. And sadly, there may be more prayer in both of those places than there is on earth for the lost. Wouldn't it be... Can't we pray more for those who don't know God? Shouldn't we be praying more for those by name who don't know Him? I mean, we, don't have, we only have this life to live one time. When this time has come and passed, only what we've done for Christ will last. Only thing we can take to heaven with is His people. And our hearts should be broken for those people who are headed to hell without Christ, just like our Savior's heart is broken for them. Amen? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do just come before You tonight and, or this morning. And Lord, I just pray, Father God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know You, that Father God, that they, by the power of the Holy Spirit, their hearts would just be open. Lord, it's not too late right now, but it will be too late one day. And Father, if there's anybody here that doesn't know You, that maybe they're a visitor, maybe they're not for sure that they've ever given their life to You, I just pray, Father God, that right now, that they would respond, not to the words of men, not to a, a fiery message, 
but Lord, to the drawing of Your Holy Spirit, to the cross of Jesus Christ, where You suffered and died, that we might have eternal life. So I'm not going to take a long time, but you know what? By divine appointment, you're here this morning, and I know that God's called me to do this. If you're here, and you've never given your life to Jesus Christ, and if you're a Christian, just bow your head and pray for those who don't know the Lord. If you're here, and you don't know that you know that you know that you've given life to the Lord, and the, the Word of God has pierced your heart this morning, and you say, you know what? I want to know for sure that I'm not going to be where the rich man was, but I'm going to spend eternity with Almighty God, the place where Lazarus went. The Bible says very clearly, if you confess me before men, I'll confess you before my Father in heaven. If you deny me before men, I will deny you before my Father in heaven. And all you're going to do is pray a simple prayer. I'm not asking you to join a church. I don't want your money. I don't want your stuff. All the Lord wants to say is, I love you. I died for you. Will you let me be your Father? Will you let me adopt you into my family? If you're here today and you want to know for sure, it's just simply saying, I confess I'm a sinner. Jesus, be my Savior, and you can know for sure you're going to heaven. And all the angels in heaven will rejoice. That's what the Bible says. Is there anybody here at all? You just raise your hands between you and the Lord. Nobody else is thinking about you right now. This is between you and God. Is there even one person here? You want to know for sure that you're going to heaven. Is there anybody? Anybody at all? Don't let the enemy win. You know, the sad part is that when you get to hell, just like the, just like the rich man has eternal memory, he remembers Lazarus, so too will those who reject God remember every opportunity they had to come to know Him. And you know, we'll remember this morning if we reject Him. Is there anybody here at all? So Lord, we just thank You. We praise You, Lord, again. And I just pray, Father God, if there's anybody here that doesn't know You, that Your Word would not return void in their hearts. And Father God, that they would respond to the love of God and the power of Your Holy Spirit in their lives. And Lord, help us to have a burden for this world. Lord, may we not just, just have the, be on the cruise ship to heaven. May we not just live our lives every single day like it doesn't matter, being focused on the world. But Lord, may we be so in love with You that we give from an abundant heart. May we be so in love with You that the things that break Your heart breaks our heart. May we be so in love with You, Lord, that the things that burden You, the lost people of this world, would burden us. So Lord, we love You. We praise You. We thank You for Your Word. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's people said, let's stand and close the worship song.